0: We have to build a fortress around our focus. We have to take back control and put some parameters in place so that we are not distracted during those deep work windows.
1: Hello, it's Andrew May and welcome to another edition of the Strive Stronger podcast where we pull apart those two words, strive from the French word of strave, which means pushing through challenging times and coming out the other side and stronger. It's all about being stronger physically, psychologically, emotionally, financially in every part of our lives. Dr. Christy Goodwin is one of Australia's leading digital wellbeing and performance experts and a mum who also deals with her kids' techno tantrums. She's a researcher, author, speaker and media commentator who provides science-backed solutions to optimise wellbeing and productivity. Christy draws on cutting-edge neuroscience to explain the profound impacts technology has on our performance and health without prescribing digital detoxes and going laptopless christy worked as an educator before becoming an academic and a speaker i'm really going to pull on that thread today she speaks at conferences schools workplaces and medical conferences throughout australia She is on a mission to empower people to foster healthy and realistic digital behaviors that support performance and well-being. Christy is also the resident Strive Stronger digital well-being expert. We've got her in the studio. Welcome.
0: Great to be here. Thank you.
1: Now, you're here with myself and Angela Poon. Ange is my partner in crime at Strive Stronger, and I said to Ange, I'm interviewing Dr. Christie on Digital Wellbeing and she said, you are not doing that interview without me because as you know, Ange and I do a lot of work with organisations. In fact, the three of us, I am the rose between you two thought, no, I'm the thought, <laughs> you two <laughs> <Let's races>. try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was actually a Freudian slip. You know where I'm going ladies as well. So let's get back onto the content. A rough frame today, Christy, I would like to go through number one, what is digital wellbeing? Two, we'll talk about digital addiction and my gosh, that's just increasing. All right. So I want to really see what you're doing to try and put the brakes on. And three, we can't talk about this without a solution. So number one, to start with, what is digital wellbeing? Now, now our Strive Stronger definitions when we talk about 10 dimensions of well being, we say digital well being is the ability to craft and maintain a healthy relationship with technology. What's your definition?
0: Yeah, look, I think you're spot on. I also define digital well being in the sense that um, how can we cultivate healthy and productive relationships with technology so that it is supporting rather than stifling our well being? Because I think we'd all recognise many of us feel like we're slaves to the screen. You know, we salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time we get an alert or a notification. Um, You know, research tells us many of us are picking up our phone before our partner first thing in the morning. Some of us have a condition called nomophobia, fear of literally not having our phone in close proximity. So I think the reality is many of us have developed some unhealthy digital dependencies. So digital well-being is certainly about how we can use technology. It's not about digital amputation. It's not about aiming for inbox zero. Those approaches and digital detoxes just don't work and they're unrealistic. It's all about how do we foster those sustainable habits and behaviours around technology because it's plays an integral role in all of our lives, both personally and professionally.
1: You'd have to pick a light partner if you're going to pick up your mobile phone before your partner, like if you're going to pick up your partner, they have to be a line, uh,
0: right? Best dad joke. Dad joke,
2: isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> We've just finished Father's Day. we just started. I'm allowed to
1: have one, but I know what you're saying. We we pick up our mobile phones before talking to or connecting with partners and friends and loved ones. I, I think it's really interesting even thinking about that term, what is digital wellbeing? So go back when you, know, you two were still at school and I was studying It was physical well-being. It was all, really, we understood well-being, or the definition had been skewed largely from physical activity. We threw in a bit of nutrition, rest, recovery. Then the psychologist and the exercise physiologist, thank God, started to intermingle and didn't put themselves in vacuums. You're not a head on a stick. So we had psychological well-being, but we've really expanded that, haven't we, to the point that it now has its own, I was going to say niche, but that's incorrect. It's a category, digital well-being.
0: It is. And I also think that our digital wellbeing has huge impacts on other facets of our wellbeing. They're inextricably linked. We know, for example, our digital habits are having a huge impact on our physical health, everything from our musculoskeletal health. Many of us have developed, you know, tech neck where we're hunched over our devices and it's having a a physiological impact on our musculoskeletal health. We also know it's having a huge impact on our mental health, you know, constantly being tethered to technology, not having a a psychological break from our work because now you know the, the boundaries between work and home have become obliterated um it really is having a huge impact it, you know at the way we sleep is radically being shaped by technology and our, and our use of de- devices and um, we also know even the way that we breathe believe it or not is being altered by our digital habits and behaviours.
1: Can I throw in relationship wellbeing? Because we yes. go out to breakfast, it was interesting on Father's Day, going out to lunch with the kids and we had to get a big table because I've got four of them. And watching around, we have a rule now that when we eat, no technology on the table. And I can tell you, most people nearest not only were breaking that rule; they may as well have stayed at home and ordered Uber and got the food in because they were glued to their devices. So then you you pose the question: What what are these things doing to our relationships or that lack of connection when you actually go out to a restaurant on a nice day, sitting in the sun in between the rain, and you're on your phone? It doesn't make sense. I'm starting to sound like Trev, my dad, who's in his early seventies, and Dad actually asked me this stuff, Christy. He said, so, what do you teach people? Well, Dad, I teach basic. I teach people basic shit that they know that they don't do. Like what? <laughs> like get off your mobile phone. And Dad goes, why don't they just get off their mobile? Look, Dad, it's changed a bit Not since you simple. left the, the government, yeah, you know, fifteen, twenty years ago.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely having an impact on um, interpersonal and I think intrapersonal relationships. Um, Studies have actually looked at what happens when just our phone is present. The quality of our interactions go down. The language even shifts just by the presence of a smartphone in the proximity of where the conversation is taking place. We've got other studies that that tell us that people's personal relationships are compromised when people are constantly checking emails. Um, So this has been. Searched. And so you're not imagining it, it's not you sort of making sweeping assumptions based on your observations. These are tangible impacts that we are experiencing through our highly dependent relationship on technology.
1: One more thing and then I'll throw to Ange and we can start talking about the why. Why are we addicted to this? But Ange, we see this in our corporate programs. We assess, especially if we use our 10 dimensions of well-being calculator. Christy, can you guess how many different types of well-being we assess on that? 10. <laughs> <laughs> you got the job. Yeah. yeah. And one of those is digital and it always comes out the worst score.
0: Yeah.
1: And and what do you think the second worst score that is close to that, that has this independent relationship or interdependent relationship?
0: Oh, I was going to say sleep.
1: Yeah, part of sleep, the broader bracket, physical uh, well-being. Physical, yeah. and And we see when people get off their tech – They score much better on digital well-being, but they also score much, much better on physical. And there's another one, Ange, that Dr. Tom and I are trying to work out. We've got a theory on this, Mm -hmm. but it's also around purpose and connection or spiritual well-being. Now, our definition of spiritual well-being, it's not just religion for those who have a denomination, that, that is your chosen denomination. But for us, spiritual well-being is more aligned with purpose. And we find when people get off the tech, go outside, connect with other people, they have a much clearer understanding of what purpose is.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to add to that. I think another way that technology's really impacted our physical health and mental wellbeing, and I think we all agree there you know, there's a really strong symbiotic relationship between all of them. But I have a theory that our digital habits are doing two things. The first thing I think that technology is doing to us is it's added a whole lot of little micro stresses to the day. These seem really benign and they are really benign, but they accumulate throughout our day. Alerts, notifications, multitasking, working for longer hours, they're tiny little micro stresses. The second part of the equation that I think technology is responsible for is that we used to have some biological buffers that used to naturally be baked into our day that technology has shaped, influenced, impacted in a really negative way. We used to be more physically active. If anyone uses a you know, a fitness tracker and monitors their steps, I think we all acknowledged, especially during lockdowns, that our physical movement often declined. Those incidental bits of movement that we used to have.
1: I'm gonna make us- this sound like a Seinfeld episode and Whiz, you might put in the don't 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 hey Jerry Cosmo Kramer comes into the interview. Isn't that ironic in itself that we track our physical activity through technology and then people freak out if they haven't like I've haven't got my whoop band today, and I said to Todd, I've got to charge it like because I'm in this program that we're running with Fraser's property and we're all downloading our whoops I'm like, well, I know I've slept poorly last night because the kids were up, I don't need yeah my band, but it's it's interesting, right, that we now use technology to track this so much, whereas there's an old school thought thinking, you, sleep, recover, rest, work, play, and you know get life and don't use technology to me- measure everything. But I'm one of those. I, I, I love measuring data.
0: I do and I think I agree it can have a double-edged sword you know if it it is causing more anxiety by tracking your performance that you might know is abysmal anyway then it can have a negative impact but I also think it can spur people on so I think it is definitely impacting just just those basic I say as humans, we have a biological blueprint. We we cannot outperform our biology. As humans, we need to move, we need to interact with other people, we need sunlight, we need sleep, and we need good quality nutrition. And technology is certainly shaping and impacting all of those. There's some new research that is suggesting, as I mentioned before, that even the way we breathe is being changed by our screen. So as humans, we we should sigh, we do sigh, I should say, roughly every five minutes. It's a way, a biological way for us to regulate our stress response. We even add our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. New research tells us that when we are on our screens, our psi rate drops dramatically. This indicates we're in a heightened stress state just because we are on our screens. And so there's so much science that's pointing to the fact that our digital habits, if we're not intentional, if we're not putting some good guardrails around them, can have a really negative impact on our wellbeing. And particularly, I think I call it techno stress. But I, I think those two things, the increase in micro stresses, and the decline in those biological buffers are some of the reasons. And I think that would help explain why there's cascading consequences with our physical wellbeing.
1: We're doing a podcast with Dino Gladstone from Bondi Rescue fame on the science of breathing coming up. So I'll definitely pull on that thread. But today is about the science of digital well-being. It's all interconnected. And that's a beautiful link, Christy. Let's get into part two, the digital addiction.
2: Christy, we've done some research on the stats for our 30-day Boost program. And studies have shown that during COVID, the average participant was spending two and a half hours a day accessing unrelated digital content. 40% of knowledge workers got less than 30 minutes of deep work per day. And this one blew my mind. 70% of emails were opened within six seconds of receipt. And there was a 70% uptick in social media use. And this is something that you shared with us, which is that it takes up to 23 minutes and 15 seconds to refocus your attention when you get distracted. Christy, what is happening and why are we so distracted
0: by our digital devices? I think there's three things happening. I think the reason we have become so distracted, I'm cautious against saying we're addicted. I think, you know, the word addiction is a very medically loaded word. I'm not for a moment suggesting that many of us aren't digitally obsessed or we have some unhealthy digital habits and behaviours. We are tethered to technology and I certainly think many of us would acknowledge that we have some unhealthy digital dependencies. Why? I think there's three big reasons why and I'm happy to explore them in more detail. The first one is where we can abdicate some of our responsibility and we can start to blame the tech companies. (laughs) We start to say the Technology has been designed to be addictive and appealing. If you haven't watched The Social Dilemma, um, and it's now freely available on YouTube, I would strongly encourage you to have a look at that. They talk about some of the persuasive design techniques that lure us in. One technique that's very well known is something called intermittent variable rewards. So if you knew that every 48 minutes and 15 seconds there'd be an interesting Teams chat, you wouldn't go in and keep checking your Teams chats. Equally, if your inbox, if you knew at a predictable ratio when you'd get a a good email or an an email that rewarded you or praised you, we wouldn't go in and habitually check. But it's that intermittent reward ratio, much like poker machines. You never know when you're going to win and score big really down to granular things like the notification bubble. For most of us, the notification bubble is red, and red is a psychological trigger for urgency and importance. The fact that our notification bubble has a number in it, a metric declaring how many unread Teams chats or emails that we have. So that is the first reason I think there are some very persuasive design techniques that tech companies, including the workplace technologies we're all now reliant on, The second reason that I think we have some unhealthy digital dependencies is because our technologies, particularly more so our leisure technologies, have been designed to meet our most basic psychological needs. This is what I call or what is referred to in the literature as self-determination theory. And self-determination theory says as humans we have three basic psychological drivers. We're wired to connect, we want to feel competent, and we want to feel like we're in control. The online world has tapped into those needs you know that that desire to connect is why social media has become so prevalent why we all have a love-hate relationship with email and teams chats and slack we are wired to connect um we are wired to feel competent so we want to plow through the emails in our inboxes and we want to feel like we have some autonomy some control so that's the second reason the third reason that i think we are digitally dependent is because when we are online there are neurobiological changes when especially when we're doing something pleasurable be that scrolling social media checking cricket scores reading something that's entertaining our brain releases dopamine now dopamine not only is a neurotransmitter that cra- makes us crave more and more of whatever made us feel good the problem also is that dopamine actually overrides and floods our prefrontal cortex so the part of the brain that that manages that, that self-regulates our behavior that says you know, 15 minutes on LinkedIn is enough. Put it away and go back and do your deep work. You know, stop triaging your inbox and get back to the the, the data analysis that you really should be doing. When you're doing something pleasurable, that part of your brain cannot regulate what you are doing. So there are a whole lot of things I think that are happening. I think it's the collision of those three things. The tech's been designed in a way to lure us in. It meets our psychological needs and it causes those neurobiological changes. Christy, there's so many factors that just luring us in, you
2: talked about those dopamine um, effects on on the brain. I'm interested in knowing, do we know what the long-term impacts are to our brain because of the
0: impacts of digital addiction? I have to be honest and say in some regards we are conducting a bit of a living experiment. You know, the iPad is not very old, we've had smartphones for many years. Some of the research is pointing to the fact, and it is an emerging body of research, that our digital habits can have a negative impact on our physical and our mental health. We know our attention spans are most certainly shrinking. I heard in some of your statistics that you were listing before. A study was done a couple of years ago with knowledge workers. They examined over 180 million hours worth of knowledge workers online time, and they wanted to see how long knowledge workers could focus on their work before a digital distraction diverted their attention. This particular study found that it was an average of six minutes, six minutes of deep focused work before the ping of an email or a notification or a calendar reminder diverted our attention.
1: There was some Harvard research done a couple of years ago. This is pre-COVID, which I think would have got worse during COVID when we're getting updates every day on numbers and what's happening and working from home and everything else as well. For the first time in history, this harvard business review article said the average attention span of a human being is less than that of a goldfish goldfish the little suckers can focus for 8 seconds yeah i'll go for 4 but now with bings and dings and buzzes that we're getting distracted every couple of seconds it's ridiculous if if think about if someone had left for 20 or 30 years, if they'd gone and lived mm. up in the mountains on a glacier or just somewhere not connected, coming back. You hear this about people who've been incarcerated in prison for you know, decades. So they come back and go, oh, gosh, I now have to get my money out of a machine. I think about what would happen if someone had been off the grid for 20 years and they came back. It would do their head in.
0: And it does. It elevates our stress, you know, and what many of us are doing to try and cope with these constant digital demands coming our way is we're reverting to multitasking. People are sitting in meetings and they're triaging their inboxes. They're trying to split their attention. And we know this only adds to our stress. When we multitask, our brain releases cortisol, the stress hormone, We know we burn through glucose, which is our brain's energy supply. But the most fascinating research that we've done with multitasking is that instead of information going to our brain's hippocampus, which is the memory center of the brain, when we multitask, it goes to a part of the brain called the striatum that doesn't help with our long-term retrieval. So we've almost been forced to then adopt even more unproductive, unhealthy habits out of necessity to cope with this. So one of the things I say to people is we have to build a fortress around our focus. We have to take back control and put some parameters in place so that we are not distracted during those deep work windows. Otherwise, as you said, that that 23 minute and 15 seconds, the resumption lag, that is hugely costly to our output if we are spending the predominance of our day just going backwards and forwards between bits of information and being in this highly distractible state. Christine, now speaking of the cost of that on our output, we when I when we
2: walk around offices, we s- often see there are employees, especially the younger ones, Andrew, when they're sitting in front of their laptop. No worries, Grandma. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: younger ones, look at you. <laughs>
2: hey, I'm in the older generation, okay? Uh, but we we'd see them in front of their laptops, and their their mobile phone is sitting in between their hands as they're typing, and that you talked about multitasking and being distracted. I do wonder, what is this costing us in terms of or what is this costing companies
0: in terms of productivity and lost time? So I'm going to answer the second part of your question, but I want to talk about just the mere presence. A study has actually quantified this. So if our phone is in our line of sight when we're working, let's face it, that's how many of us operate, even if it is on silent and even if the phone is face down, if your phone is in your line of sight, it has around 10% impact on your cognitive <laughs> performance. I say to people when I'm working with them, put simply, seeing your phone makes you 10% dumber. It literally is a brain drain.
1: People people who are listening to this on audio didn't see the visual gag then. <laughs> I, I did have my phone on the desk. I had notes on it. And as you were saying that, I just dropped it on the floor. It's... It's fascinating making it ten percent. I, I get it because even Huge. when you're going off notes, and I, you know, most of my notes for a podcast are on paper, so I don't get distracted. But you think you're reading on your notes section on your iPhone, and then a message comes up, you get a text from your mom, your partner, or a kid. I totally get it; it distracts you. I'm never having a digital device in the studio again, Ange.
0: Good idea. That was very distracting. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> but it goes back to that idea. Biologically, we're designed so that if something comes to us an alert, a flash, a sound, biologically as humans, we are primed to perceive that as a threat. Could that be a tiger about to chase us? If so, I need to be in a heightened alert state and I need to respond. So we're acting out of our natural biological tendencies. So um, really important that we, where we can, you know, really pragmatic things, not for the whole day, but when you know you've got to get some deep focused work done, put your phone somewhere where you cannot see it and also hear it. In terms of what it's costing organisations, this may scare you, and I need to point out this is US data because I don't think anyone in Australia has been brave enough to quantify what it would be here. But the uh, the Economic Intelligence Unit actually quantified what distractions were costing US organisations. And they found, are you ready, that the average knowledge worker Lost 581 hours per year due to distractions. That equated to being about 28% of their working week. And in terms of income costs, that cost an organization around $34,448 per employee, which equates to $1.2 trillion in lost output. Wow, that's incredible. That's scary, you- isn't it? <laughs> Can you imagine if we
2: didn't have the the these distractions, how much more productive economies will be? But because of all of this, we're losing hundreds, if not thousands of hours of, of man time. I'm going to give a
1: balanced argument. Uh, first of all, I'm not surprised at that number, 581 hours. Like you, Christy, I get invited to play companies. So last week I played banking and I played councils and this week I'm playing consulting. And when you go in and do a consulting, not a consulting, when you go into a keynote or a presentation, you know, so throughout the year I might go and play 50 different companies and in different industries. So you get a real window into what's happening. Mm. So, and I see this all the time at conferences. In fact, I say to organisers, if we're doing a conference experience, can you? Because I, I the guy that gets crucified. But can you get the MC to say, can everyone turn their mobiles onto silent one? Two, we'll create a parking lot and we put them in the middle of the table. Uh, They can still see them, Christy. So I know they're 10% dumber, but that's better than being 50 or 60% dumber. (laughs) And you see the anxiety go up and I have a bit of fun with it. The amount of times I've had people come back and go, oh yeah, I wasn't on my phone for that hour when you spoke and actually learned something people don't really talk like that. (laughs) But I've had that multiple times. But where I want to give a counterbalance, Angie, in what you said, yes, it's causing us lost productivity money, but technology is also allowing us to absolutely ramp up and scale up. So i look at our business. We have a meeting at 9am on a Monday morning and we have Five of us in the room, Sean, who's our head of tech, is at his home office, Harry's at his home office, Dr. Tom is normally at Sydney University, and Angeline is in the Philippines as our outsource doer. So this is where I try and get the seesaw, okay? because the way that I work, the way we work now it's so different, even to what it was three years ago. COVID's been a blessing in disguise. Christy, you know this because we're working together on the NAB business fit program. And at Stride Stronger, we lost 90% of revenue. We've got a totally different business now, totally different. We are doing global programs. and we're off to Canberra tomorrow doing work with Defence around Australia, doing podcasts, private podcasts, doing digital resources, all this stuff we had to do because the old business model, Dr. Christie, and I know you don't like being called Dr. Christie, but you are, so I'm going to celebrate it. It was just live events. It's archaic. So that's where i try and find that balance right between accelerating the business and for us to hit our goals, Angela, we have to digitise. But the flip side of that is, yeah, how do you get this balance? And I don't know how to get it sometimes.
0: Yeah, and I agree. I think technology has offered us a, you know, a range of benefits. And I think we're at a really exciting juncture. I know there's so much conversation around new ways of working. I think the biggest silver lining for knowledge workers is uh, there's a lot of talk around flexible work arrangements. I think that is important. I think the conversation and the dialogue should be shifting towards productive work arrangements. What does it look like for you to be productive? And I often talk about, you know, in an organisational perspective, this is flexibility within like a framework within some constraints. But we know um, Future Forum recently published some data saying that 95% of knowledge workers are demanding schedule flexibility. They want flexibility around when they work. This is the silver lining of the pandemic for knowledge workers. If we're no longer constrained to the 9 to 5 workday in the office, Can you start to structure your day so you do your most productive work when you are biologically most focused and alert? You know, very few of us ever really were most productive and alert between nine and five. We all had different peaks and troughs. So now we've got the opportunity to redefine when work gets done, also where work gets done in terms of location. But I think that's a huge opportunity. And that's where we can start to say if you're most productive in the morning, if you're the early bird, then That's when you have to build a fortress around your focus.
1: Early birds, people love working with early birds. Early birds are awesome, said with no... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> of bias
2: all <laughs> I, I don't know if you can tell, Christy, but I'm not an early bird, but this one is. So I often get emails that hit my inbox in the morning. But we, you talk about that flexibility and working in, in a way that works with your own, operate, which w- what we call operating rhythm. And we've actually been doing that within Strive Stronger since the start. And like you said, it is a silver lining because you're able to then use that time of focus where it suits you. So with Andrew and myself, I know that he works super early and he gets his day set up, but it doesn't mean that I have to respond straight away. And I think that's the key thing when you're talking about having some of those boundaries because often even when you're receiving those pings and the alerts and you're talking about, okay, to show that I'm competent, I have to then go and answer that email or or action that item. I think it's about setting those boundaries and expectations within your organisation so that it's not about just responding straight away,
0: but doing it in a time that suits you. Totally. So I'm doing a lot of work with teams at the moment to help them um, articulate what I'm calling their digital guardrails. So coming up with team agreements. And this is not something that I write and they adopt. This is a co-constructed set of digital norms, practices, and principles around how we use technology. So, you know, what's an I- acceptable internal email response rate? How do I accelerate an urgent matter? Is it a Teams chat? Is it messaging someone on WhatsApp? Is it picking up the phone and having a good old-fashioned phone call?
2: Which people don't hardly ever do now, isn't it? I'm Just picking it? up the phone. What have I done wrong?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think I said that to you a couple Couple of weeks ago, you rang and went, What have I done wrong? What, 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 what did I do wrong?
0: <laughs> um, and coming up with those parameters, you know, what are our pra- parameters around virtual meetings? We all know virtual meetings and hybrid meetings are mentally taxing, they're exhausting for a whole host of reasons Man, to do with our brain. Shit
1: boring, aren't oh they? Oh my <laughs> god, am I allowed to say, Oh, yes, it's my <laughs> podcast, I can say that. No so, we've naturally like. come to part three, which is the effects we've evolved into this, Christy, without even framing it. I love that term, digital guardrails. And just closing out, Ange, on what we said about productivity. Yeah, I'm I'm the gazelle. I'm up on my operating with them or my better week on a Tuesday. I'll come in here. 5.36 5.36 and bang out a couple of hours before everyone else is awake, because that's when I think best, but Ange knows that she doesn't have to respond then. You're much more of a tiger bordering on a bear, so you'll work you know, late morning, but definitely early evening, into the evening. But just having that understanding of what the people in your team are like is massive. So that's, that's a huge thing we need to do. And yeah, this whole now, I like that acronym, PWA, Productive Work Arrangement. I have a dirty little secret that came out in COVID. Do you
2: really want to know this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, not that one. This one. Uh, but even when I was at KPMG, and Angie, you know this, I had a manager there who actually wanted me to put in leave when I was coming up with a program. We'd sold a big program into Boral, a well-being program, physical and psychological. And it's archaic to think I had this conversation. But he said, are you taking time off? And and I just said to him, and it wasn't, he he wasn't doing it out of malice. It was just foreign at that stage that as a partner, you could be working and not being in the office. And, And he said, how long have you been doing this? I said, about 10 years. It's how I get work done, that people think I'm a muck around and sometimes I do. But when I work, I get away from everyone. It's almost a a flip personality. And if I go down to Giroa on the South Coast, give me three days, I'll get seriously three weeks of work done, maybe a month, if I'm distracted. So it was just really interesting having that conversation back then. Now post-COVID, everyone's onto that dirty little secret, knowing that we can find this rhythm between. and, And what we're teaching, Christy, is you'll have days in the office, which is more about. About connection and collaboration, and then go home, get off the grid if you're a knowledge worker, and do your deep work, and then come back and connect again. So getting this nice pulse between the two.
0: Yeah, I love that cadence. And I think it's really important we acknowledge that people certainly do need that. that flexibility. But as I said, I think we're better off focused on when are you most productive, because wouldn't it be great if we could get more of our work done in less time? And in doing so, we'd naturally start to support our wellbeing as well, because we're working in in congruence with how we're neurobiologically designed rather than against it.
1: Do you ask that question in your workshops and programs? Do you get people to Talk about when they are most productive because it seems so simple. But I get people looking at me like, "God, I've never been asked this question before."
0: Yes, we get people to identify their chronotype, so you can identify. There's a whole raft of measures you can use, but I often say to people, we in, intrinsically know most of the time if we're, you know, when our energy peaks and troughs. And I often say to people, if you're not quite sure, think about the last time you took annual leave, and and think about by da- about day three or four, not the first couple of days when you usually just. Exhausted, but when would you naturally start to wake up? And when would you naturally start to go to bed in holidays? That is often an indicator as to when you're most focused and alert and you can translate that to your, your natural day because there's so much evidence that tells us that if you can get your work done during your, your peak performance window, your output um, will increase exponentially because you're working the way that you should.
1: And for people listening to this who are very linear and detail-focused, Christy said day three or four, not day 20 or 21 because there's a thing called the free running cycle or free range cycle that over a three-week or two-week or three-week period, a month, gosh, help you, when you don't have to get up early, people tend to faff around at night and get up later and later. So it's not at the end of three or four weeks because everyone will go, woohoo, I go to bed after midnight and get up at eight. No, that's holidays.
0: I will point out, many of us think we, I I should say, the data that we're collecting indicates that many people think they're night owls than what actually are. And I believe it's our tech habits that are, suggesting or nudging us to adopt some unhealthy habits that mean that we are falling asleep later. You know, being on our devices in the 60 minutes before we go to sleep, we know does two main things. One, it delays the onset of sleep because our body doesn't make enough melatonin, so it takes us longer to to fall asleep. And two, we also know that once we do fall asleep, without adequate melatonin, our deep and REM sleep stages are significantly shorter. That is when memory consolidation occurs. That's when our restful sleep occurs, and many of us are having, you know, are curtailing the amount of sleep we get in those periods, just because we've been on our devices before we go to sleep.
1: So I'm sure you don't break any of these rules. I'd love to know what is a day in the life of your household with active, crazy, busy children. I got busted last night by Archie, my 11 year old. He couldn't sleep, he woke up, he came out, got a drink of water, he said, dad, you tell everyone to get off your mobile for the melon and melon, <laughs> melon something.
2: <laughs> oh, I love that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know, he's, he's a funny little man. Um, why are you on your phone? And I, I was actually making some notes. I said, oh, I'm making some notes for today. So yeah, when you, when you put these rules at home, you're open to being busted. But what What does this look like for you? Good and bad. Give me me maybe a a good day and and if you've got a recent example where the proverbial hit the fan and how did you get back on track?
0: Well, I'll start with where it hit the fan because this is why I became so passionate about this work. I, years ago, went to speak overseas at a conference and came back to Australia and stood at the baggage carousel and did what everybody does at the baggage carousel, pulled out my phone while I waited and saw that I had amassed a whopping 77 unread emails on the flight back to Sydney. So I thought I'll triage those in the taxi on the way home. Fell asleep in the taxi on the way home, got home, opened up my laptop and saw that there were 144 emails now requiring my urgent attention. And I opened up the lid on my laptop and I went, I had my son at the time, Um, Billy, he was about 15 months, and he decided that he wasn't going to have a nap this day. And I had very ambitiously scheduled a work call during his time. So I opened up the lid on the laptop just to cancel the, the call, Um, and send one email. But because I saw that awful red icon declaring that I had 144 emails, I went down the digital rabbit hole. And I got really distracted and started triaging my inbox and wasn't watching Billy. And Billy fell from the lounge adjacent to where I was and smashed his face flat on the ground, requiring urgent hospitalisation, yes. (laughs) He had such a serious laceration that we had to rush him to emergency. And he still, to this day, has a little scar on his lower lip. And to ease my mother's guilt, because I can hear (laughs) Anne. Terrible, so I'm like sorry. scar
1: on his lip. How cool. Like a pirate.
0: I, I know the doctor said that to him. He said scars pull cheeks his- and as a 15-month-old because um, I was mortified. I was devastated and racked with mother's guilt. But I will point out he'd done the same thing or a similar injury falling off the lounge two weeks earlier when my husband was dutifully supervising him. So I'm suggesting that the serious wound he sustained was just a reopening of an existing wound. But it was at that point in time where I realized here I was talking about distraction and digital habits. I wasn't immune to the digital pool. I got sucked into the digital vortex and it had really serious ramifications. Now, you may not have serious ramifications, but I think that if we were all deeply honest with ourselves, many of us are tethered to technology. You know, I go to swimming lessons and I look around. And, you know, when kids finally, after 22 weeks of swimming lessons, they nail the tumble turn, they come up and their caps filled with water or half off and their goggles are filled with water and they're looking up to give you the thumbs up and you miss the moment. You know, we're missing those micro moments of connection with other people that are really important. And I often say technology can connect us, but it can disconnect us. It can bring us together But it also can mean that we're alone. We're often together but alone. So that's where I really stuffed up. And that was really the catalyst for me to go, hang on, what is it about the online world that's drawing us in? Why are we so distracted? Why can we not focus? As an adult, I would have liked to have thought I had fairly good brain architecture that would help me navigate this, but I become distracted.
1: Were you teaching this topic then or did no. that incident no. okay, right?
0: so that that was the catalyst. So I'd been speaking about the impact technology was having on children and teenagers, and it was then I went, hang on, we're just as guilty, we're just as, if, if not more so, um, we're not being often good digital role models, and we know kids' brains have something called mirror neurons, meaning that they're biologically wired to imitate and copy. And if we're you know yelling at them to turn their devices off while we're at our laptop or with our phones, often it's natural for them to em- emulate and imitate what they're seeing.
1: So Billy, when you listen to this, your mum's business is a direct result of you, you deserve a percentage. Stop it. <laughs> no, all, all jokes aside, all jokes aside. You had an acute incident that really – I call that yeah. the, the wake-up or the slap. Bang, like it, you've Lost. really been startled. Yeah. That's a gift. And and thankfully, I'm, I'm being not just facetious, but you, Billy's got the scar, but it could have been a whole lot worse, right? But that was a, 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 a micro incident that had a big impact on you and charted a totally different career. For people listening to this who haven't had Billy or Sammy or Raj or whoever fall off the lounge – it's more insidious and it's a slow release it's tap 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 dr tom buckley talks about stress a little bit of stress is okay but if i went over to the chiprock wall with a pen tap 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 nothing's going to happen now and but if i tap away for 5 10 15 years one tap too many is going to crumble the wall yeah so for those people who are listening to this going oh, and you don't even don't even have a conscious awareness of that that's when you've got to put some interventions in now.
0: I I my biggest fear is that we are going to to look back. So I have a friend who works in palliative care and she's telling me that she is working with a number of people now who, in their final days of life, are saying, I wish now I spent less time with my devices. Imagine what we're going to see in the years to come. I just, you know, I think that the technology this is my deep passion technology has been designed to rob us of our two most important resources as humans it's been designed to rob us of our time and designed to rob us of our attention it's our job as humans to take back that control you know technology should be our servant not our master we have to put parameters and strategies in place we we can't sit back and wait till the tech companies become, you know, develop a moral compass and start to make their technologies less addictive. That's just not going to happen. Have you both read um, Johan Hari's book, his latest book? I have. Oh, it's brilliant. So he talks a lot about what the tech companies are doing, um, to to literally make us distracted.
1: Does he quote Tristan Harris, who is the whistleblower yes. at Facebook? Yeah, I have. I haven't read that, but I've read articles. I think it was a Time magazine article. Yeah. The the title, the book sounded familiar. What the behavioural scientists have done to get inside our brain, and Tristan Harris talks about this in the social dilemma, to basically get in, pull out the core of our brain, and hijack your attention, then put it back in. Yeah, you can't beat that without some real strategies.
0: And like a really, really pragmatic thing. One of the reasons we find it hard to turn off technology is because we enter something that's called the state of insufficiency. The online world's a bottomless bowl. There's no stopping cues. There's no endpoints. You know, there's always another level on if you've got kids that are game. There's always another Teams message. There's always another email. There's always a refresh of social media. There's always there's another news site that you can read. So we never feel done or complete. And again, turning off the autoplay feature on YouTube, on Netflix, on Stan, that lulls you. You know, that's how we end up binge watching TV shows that we wish we hadn't. So there are some really pragmatic things that we can do to take back control of technology so that we are in control rather than it controlling us. And I think that's where we really need to be stepping forward if we want to take back that control. Yeah, Christy, I first came across you on my Facebook feeds. I
2: follow uh, Maggie Dent, Justin Colson, and they were recommending articles from you because you had worked in the space uh, around uh, digital well-being in children. I was fascinated by what you did because I have a daughter. And I am very concerned with raising a child in this digital age and how do we stop them from getting lulled in and all of the other insidious things that happen, especially in that teen years. And that's why I, I love what you do. We talked about, you know, the digital guardrails, but how do you model that in front of your children so that they don't pick up some of your bad habits?
0: Yeah, I'm going to be honest and say it's not easy. And there are times where I do slip up. I know that I scroll social media way more than I should when I'm tired. And I know that's because that, that prefrontal cortex of my brain that just would ordinarily say, you know, an hour on Instagram is enough. Christy, turn it off and go and do something productive. It just doesn't seem to work. It's why we eat crappy foods when, or we make poorer food choices when we're tired. So for us, it, it, my husband and I are, are really quite cognizant about role modelling healthy habits. So it's about having a, a digital curfew. We have in our house a, a time where we agree um, that devices are switched off Particularly handheld devices. So at night, sometimes we do as a family watch a, a television show together. Sometimes we don't, but making sure that we put those parameters in place. We use a um, lockup box. I've got one right here. One of these. Oh, and so it's a metallic charging oh, it's box. It's pink. I love it. <laughs> um, it stores, it's got breathing holes at the back, but it's got a USB port. That's a really big box. And it can store up to twelve laptops, smartphones, tablets. You can there's a USB port and And it's lockable so you can store them away at night.
1: Who keeps the Um, key? (laughs)
0: I was going to ask that. Where is, where's the key help? Sneaking at night. Nice. Okay. Well, that's a good thing. So a couple of months ago I had a parent come to a seminar and she walked in with a huge handbag and all these cables and she said, I'm here for a, a digital wellbeing talk. I couldn't leave the router at home with my kids. And she later confessed that she not only used to bring the router to parent seminars, she also used to bring the router with her to work and she also used to sleep with the router. This particular box, called an in charge box, changed her life. She then just slept with the key.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. <That's> <laughs> I, I don't have the trendy pink lock up box like that, but I get my elder children because they're two younger ones. Like, Fee is only two, and Millie's nine months. They don't have phones yet. Yep. They're, they're getting teased about it, but um, <laughs> no. I. I'm, Trying to hold back. Archie's got a dumb phone, but I said to him, same as Michaela, she didn't get a smartphone until Year 7 because I I was 21 when I got my first phone. It was the Nokia Sport. Christy, it wasn't a sport. It was massive. It was like I had a broken hip, (laughs) limping along. But the exposure kids get once they are on, especially a smartphone. So Archie's just got one so he can text and make calls. That's it for safety, especially with soccer. But you just think now – we are bombarding kids from such a young age so some of those simple rules like so for older kids put your phone in the drawer at night i've busted them at times i will come out and they're sneaking to try and get it but it creates some much better habits and behaviors that hopefully they can take into adulthood as well
0: yeah so simple things like having a landing zone or a digital depot like a designated spot in the house where devices go and i say to parents develop these habits early because future you will thank you. It's so much harder to retrospectively, in fact, I'm going to say it's impossible to do this with a 16-year-old. So I encourage parents to develop these habits early on. And I also say... If possible, delay dunking them in the digital stream for as long as possible. You know, if your eight-year-old son came home from school one day and said, Dad, how about the keys to the car? I'd like to go and do burnouts. We would say no. Yeah. If you're <laughs> a, bad, <laughs> top, a you. bad,
1: bad answer. I asked this
0: recently in a seminar and there was a pregnant pause and it was very awkward. I just said, look, I'm really sorry. I'm Cautious Christy from Sydney and it's just a hard no take. Uh, if, if you're in, in Dubbo or Wagga where I grew
1: up, <laughs> burnout is part of your culture. Like if you can't well, do a burnout, you, you basically don't get Please to go to the next part keep talking I yeah don't no
0: well we had a i went spoke in rural perth and i mentioned this analogy there and they had a 10 minute forum as to whether eight-year-olds could be doing and should be doing burnouts um
1: <laughs> i don't doubt that
0: <laughs> but it's i think we need to be okay with saying no to our kids you know if they've never said to you you suck i hate you the worst parent in the world then maybe you're not doing a good enough job like we have to put in place Firm boundaries, and we need to give them reasons for our our no. So one of the things I recommend families do is to come up with a, it's called, it sounds very formal, but it doesn't have to be a family digital wellbeing plan and come up with the rules around what they can use, when they can use it, where we know, you know, location is really important with whom they can use it, and then how much time they can be spending on it. And if those parameters in place, they're almost like your family digital guardrails, then it's much more likely, as well as if you are role modelling good habits yourself, you know, keeping it away from meal areas, really, really important for conversation. Keeping it out of the car, and I'm talking about the car for short-distance trips, for two reasons. One is that if they get used to getting in the car and pulling out a device, it's a near impossible habit for kids or teens to break when they're a provisional driver. Yeah, and two, point. the car is one of the few times in the day where your kids are trapped in your close proximity. They may actually talk to you. They love kids, and research tells us this they love talking to the back or the side of your head. So they love, do you remember Dickie Knee from Hey, Hey, It's Saturday? They love Mr. Those Summers, Dickies. Mr. Summers.
1: Did you watch it yeah, a conversation. So you, you no, know, your mum and dad did.
0: I don't – I remember
2: Hey It's Saturday. It. I remember there was like a pink bird or some sort and that's about the extent of my memory.
1: You were so studious. You were probably studying or doing <laughs> other
2: stuff. <laughs>
1: Music lessons. <laughs> Good Chinese girl. You said that, wasn't it? Violin lessons, piano lessons, but letter paint. Piano lessons in yeah.
2: Chinese school, yes. No,
0: no. Wasn't watching Hey It's Saturday. <laughs> But they love those conversations. So the car's a really ripe opportunity for that. So I just, I think there's so much we can do. You know, we can put our hands in the air and say we're addicted, you know, it's crept into every crevice of our lives, or we can say what's within my locus of control? How can I claw back some of this control? So I can certainly use technology. It's not, you know, about abstaining from it. That's unrealistic. But how can I do so in ways that are congruent with how my neurobiological needs can be met as a human? And that's where I think it's an exciting opportunity. I'm really glad you said about like if your child says that they hate you, it's,
2: it's not a reflection of bad parenting. It's actually a reflection of a good parenting because my, my daughter said that just the other day. She's yeah. like, like mum, I don't, I don't like these boundaries. I hate you. <laughs>
1: But, but so I'm really that, really, in. She's
2: what, six. You,
1: like kindergarten? She's
2: kindergarten. <laughs> so I'm starting <laughs> oh, early. But I did Sucked have. Sucked in for
1: having really intelligent children oh, thanks, yeah, who are yeah, evolving yeah, so early. Not, awesome. not that mine aren't, but yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: I did have a question around do you have any recommendations on certain. Apps to help us. Well, again, it's it's the irony. Use, using digital devices to help curb our addiction
0: to digital devices. Yeah. So I often say, look at your for adults. Look at the generic tools that are on your phone. So if you're an Android user, digital wellbeing. If you're a um, iOS user, using Screen Time. With these tools, you can set time limits on how long you want to spend on particular platforms. Now, it's super easy to override them, but it's enough of a psychological nudge to say, hang on, do you really want to be spending 45 minutes on Instagram? So you can get those and set up time limits on those platforms. My favorite app, though, and I have used this to write my next book, I'm almost embarrassed to admit, is an app called Forest. And with Forest, it uses gamification. And you set a focused period of time that you're not going to open up another browser, you're not going to pick up one of your phones uh, or re- resist any tech temptation. If you adhere to the set time limit, you grow a little virtual plant. If you don't, if you resist, you give in, then you um the plant dies and withers a miserable death on your screen. It is so simple. But my goodness, I don't know what it is about growing a virtual plant that is so enticing and captivating, but it helps you to sustain your focus. So that's that really,
2: right. yeah, I love that because that really speaks to the gardener in me. So I'm going to go and, and download that app after this. Uh, any
1: other apps you recommend or are there any other apps you recommend people not to have? Oh, let's get controversial.
0: Oh, not to have. Oh, look, look I'm going to say... TikTok, we know, and um, the only reason I'm saying, look, if, if you can moderate your use as an adult, then that's fine. But we know from a study that was just recently published that looked at young people, this particular study did brain scans showing what happens inside the brain when watching customized short form videos. TikTok videos and what they clearly showed that the reward, the addictive pathways of the brain get activated when watching those short form videos as compared to long form videos. So they've really been engineered so to be addictive and to be appealing and to suck us into that digital vortex. So personally, I'm sticking clear of TikTok because I know I could go down a digital rabbit hole there. I think you've got to figure out what's your your poison. <laughs>
1: Teenagers, I have a teenage daughter, 14. If they're not on TikTok, they'll they'll be ostracized. Yeah. If you spend too much time on TikTok, it takes over your life. It really is a balance. It is. To to find. And and I said that to Mickey recently. I said, darling, well, why don't you just get off TikTok? She's dad, but that's how everyone's sharing messages and I want to be part of the conversation. So I get that. So we've put a time limit on it. And she said to me recently, Yeah, I might even go shorter. Because she she realized, and going way back, you said you're not sure about the word addicted. But mm. I think if you looked at someone who was playing poker machines yeah, with a stimulus response, we would say absolutely, unequivocally, non-apologetically, you're addicted. So I might be a little bit more blunt around this, but I think people are so addicted to the medium. And again, kids that are getting their mobile phones now, 8, 9, 10 and beyond, and they're The sympathetic nervous system is being abused from a young age, I really think as parents we've got to start getting a lot stronger around this and being really present so I love hearing some of your examples and and yeah, we're always dancing with that balance. But I think if I didn't intervene and if my partner didn't intervene, Mickey would be using it an hour, hour and a half. And you hear of these stories, right, where kids are just spending hours on TikTok and so self-esteem becomes inextricably linked with medias from social media. And for young women especially, all the images on social media are so sort of falsified as far as filters and changing shape. It just sets up so many problems i'm on the hobby horse on this one because i'm very passionate about it
0: and as i mentioned before their brain has mirror neurons so they're biologically wired to imitate and copy what they're seeing what they're hearing you know unattainable body images and so this sets them up for a, a compare and despair phenomenon and we know that's having a huge impact on their mental health one of the things i encourage families to do is when they're give their child a device is to obviously set up parental controls and restrictions, but to set those tools that I mentioned before, so screen time or digital well-being. And when you can start to quantify, when they get their phone for the first time and you go through their weekly report and say, hang on, you're spending four or five hours a day, what's the opportunity cost? And I think when we poise it in that way, it almost puts the onus or together with us, because they can't often make these decisions alone, but say, what are you missing out on? If you're spending four hours on your screen, what else could you be doing with that time? Because as I said before, they've been engineered to rob us of our time and our attention. So putting some parameters in place so they can make better choices around how they spend that time, I think is so important. But that requires significant time on a parent or a caregiver's perspective
1: what what does a great day a great digital day I love your use of alliteration what does a great digital day it's hard to say that look like for you when you're winning when I'm winning yeah
0: so I wake up um, we have a timber alarm clock in our room I have made the move to remove my phone and I I can say I resisted this I've talked about this for a long time but let's face it having your alarm on your phone is really easy and convenient so I have taken the phone out of the room, Use a timber alarm clock to wake up. I get up and do some, I'm a bit like you, Andrew, I'm an early bird, so I'm the lark. Morning. So I, yeah, we can have early morning conversations. I get up and do some deep work. At the moment, I'm working on my books. I've been getting up and just writing. Do not check my emails at all for that first window. Go to the gym, get some natural sunlight. Again, we know getting at least, and um, Professor Huberman talks a lot about getting Sunlight within the first 30 to 60 minutes of waking up to reset our circadian rhythms so and it only has to be about eight to 10 minutes of sunlight roughly. So getting some sunlight, um, I get a coffee come home and then deal with the morning craziness of kids. Then I do a quick check of my emails once the kids are all dropped off. Then because I'm the the lark and my energy is at its peak in the morning, that's where I try to really do my deep work. So I don't tend to reply to emails. I might triage them. I have a a folder method that I use. So I'm doing all my deep, productive work. Then I try, if I need to have meetings, batch them at the end of the day or the tail end of the day. We know, for example, we've talked meetings are, are taxing virtual meetings in particular, but research tells us our productivity drops by around 22% before a meeting because we often, it's that anticipation. I'm not going to start that project because it's too much required and the meeting is going to start in another 20 minutes. So I'll just leave that. So um, I have a list of shallow tasks that I can often do. So I'll pull out that shallow task of some things that I can quickly scrub off the list if I've got some meetings coming up. Do those virtual meetings and then it's often kid time in the afternoon. I may have presented somewhere in between there. I forgot about the actual, that's my deep work too. Picking up the kids and then I try not to. I have a a digital curfew where I try and finish my day and then be present with the kids. Now, that doesn't mean that the phone gets hidden away, but I'm really conscious about not picking it up and using it in front of them all the time. Putting my laptop away again, a really concrete signal to my brain that the day is done and then being with the kids and I often have to present in the evenings, which I do find a bit exhausting. <laughs> so wearing blue light blocking glasses, um, mine I just put on the floor Here there. Um, I wear blue light blocking glasses if I have to be on my screen late at night for work and then winding down, having a predictable wind down routine um, where I'm not using technology.
1: So I think if anyone listens to that, You've just spoken about what you do first thing of the morning, aligning to your concentration curve, periods of deep work with shallow work, little bits of, you know, I call that mind the gap. It's interesting, 22% decrease in productivity. Mind the gap. When you're jumping on the tube in London, you've got to mind those gaps. It's the little windows we have, 5, 10, 15 minutes here. I've seen some research on this. David Allen talking about that those gaps can become a couple of hours a day if you've got lots of other meetings. So that's really good advice. Uh, I work similar and you work similar. Uh, if you are self-employed, I can see that working.
2: Yeah, uh, my question would be, what if you worked in a large organisation? What's your advice to them? Because they often have less control over their diaries as to how they work.
1: Well, let's be frank, for someone listening to this going, oh, I'd love to do that. But you guys are stressing me out. I get to work at eight o'clock and I'm told what to do. My meetings change. I've got people reporting into me, dotted line reports, global meetings as well. Uh, There's some tension around that with people who work in big organisations, multiple touch points, and if it's global as well, we take a hit here in the Southern Hemisphere because when the executives, men and women in the US offices, especially in New York, want to go to the Hamptons for the weekends, we get the phone call, I know this recently, 2 or 3am in the morning invite so they can wrap up in the afternoon. So yeah, help out those stressed workers who feel like they have no agency
0: coming back to what's within your locus of control. So do you have some control over when some meetings are occurring? So if you can, can you try to squash out the meetings where you are inviting people? Being really cognizant about whether you need to attend all meetings. We know it's called the Zero Cost of Inclusion. And it is now so easy to send a meeting invitation to a plethora of people who we never would have asked to come into a board meeting. So just be really careful about who you are inviting. Ask whether the meeting could be possibly recorded and you read through the transcript or listen to it at one and a half speed instead of being there if you had to. Putting in place some strategies while you are on your virtual meetings. We know they're exhausting. So hiding your self so you don't have to see what you look like. Um, Part of the brand, it's called your fusiform gyrus, and it is processing your faces. So when it's on a virtual meeting, it is working overtime. So hiding your self-view can help. Reducing the size of your screen on virtual meetings can also reduce how overloaded we feel with virtual meetings. What we know is that when we're on a virtual meeting, we are usually about 60 centimetres away from our monitor, depending on the size of your monitor. 60 centimetres is what we reserve for what's called social intimate distance. This is the space that we normally reserve for cuddling, comforting, lovemaking, wrestling, tackling. And all of a sudden, you're having a meeting with Maria from marketing or from Bill from accounts. And they're in your intimate distance. So reducing the size of your screen, taking little micro breaks. I know you talk about this, Andrew. Lots and lots of um, micro breaks throughout your day to recharge. We've got brain scans that show us that fatigue sets in in virtual meetings around the 40-minute mark and stress accumulates after around two hours of virtual meetings. So can you put in some buffer breaks throughout your day to help you? Something as simple as closing your eyes gives you the two regions of your brain, your occipital and temporal lobes that process what you see in here, they get a break just by closing your eyes. So there are really pragmatic things that people can do so that they can have a rest whilst they're on these meetings as well. But I think coming back to taking back what you've got control over and, again, when you have got those pockets of time for deep, productive work, building that fortress around your focus so that you're not going to get sucked into other tech temptations in that time. You
1: mentioned Andrew Huberman before. One of the tips he's got that I've built into my practice is going panoramic. Yes. Because when you are doing all these virtual meetings, you're looking at the screen. That's a really interesting one about that intimate zone, about 60 centimetres. So shrink it down or sort of get back a little bit more. But I've started doing that. So what it means is panoramic, sort of Look outside, so where we are in the studio, we've got a beautiful bay window and you can see buildings off in the distance. So go wide on your vision and, and well, do that like even for gaze. 60 to 90 seconds yeah. to take your gaze wide and getting back into a little bit of evolution. That's how we used to walk around the plains and yeah. the savannas and now we're just myopically focused. So it's a great way of recharging, build some breathing into that. It's a, it's a double stack. Yeah.
0: And huge impact on our stress because <laughs> when we have a narrow field of vision – Biologically, that's when we needed to be stressed. So we activate our sympathetic nervous system when we dilate our gaze. This is how most of us are spending the, you know, bulk of our days with a very narrow gaze because we're looking at a laptop or a desktop computer. So as you said, really good advice. You know, broadening your, dilating your gaze makes a huge impact on our stress as well. Yeah, I love that. I'd also found that like that intimate distance connection
2: with a screen that is just fascinating i've never really thought about it before and now i'm rethinking the massive screen that i have at home great for productivity but probably not great for my stress levels
1: i think though, but let's be realistic the work we do for a lot of people listening to this the- the majority of people listening to this are using technology, are knowledge workers, or even if you've got a business, we have a number of small business owners that came onto this podcast who were with us on that business fit. You'll have periods where you need to work. So if you're an artisan baker, if you have a, you know, a lounge distribution business, you still have to use technology. But for us, like we use technology a lot. So what I like today, Christy, and I've, I've seen your message evolve a lot, you're doing this Day in day out, I can see you're speaking, you're writing, you're coaching, and isn't it interesting? Because I'm also into another bloody book, <laughs> but the clarity of your message today has gone to a different level. Oh, yeah? thank you! And we'll talk to you about this off air, but I wanted to to celebrate it on air as well. Just the way you're sequencing messages. I can see that you've done lots and lots of reps and sets, right? You don't get the clarity, the acronyms, the alliterations, the solutions without doing hours and hours of work. So you make it sound simple. You make it sound sexy and memorable, uh, but it's a lot of work and heavy lifting goes behind the scenes. But getting to my point, it's not either or, it's and. How do you have a productive operating rhythm? How do you have a digitally connected workforce? How do we and scale across the world and have people seeing our ice drive platform? And how do you recharge and take micro micro breaks? And how do you connect with your kids or for those who don't have kids with family or loved ones or pets or friends and have hobbies and not be a boring batshit at a dinner party when all you can talk about is work and your technology?
0: Thank you, they're really kind words and I do appreciate what you said, I, I I think that the best way we can go back to thinking about this. I often say we're we're not complicated as humans. We're really not convoluted. If we go back to how do we operate best as a human, I've, I've said this today. We cannot outperform our neurobiology. We have some biological constraints. How can we use technology in ways that support our human needs? Then we're going to be on a really good path to use technology in helpful ways. I think what we're seeing at the moment is we, and through no fault of anyone's, you know, many of us took our laptops under our arms in March 2020 and said, look, off you go figure out hybrid work, or it was remote work initially. Um, We've voraciously adopted social media in the last several years. So how can we start to think about how we use it in ways that are congruent rather than in conflict with our human needs, then I think we're in a good place to move forward. I think what you're trying to say is being a lot more mindful about how we use
2: it. And now that we know that the pull of the technology is so strong, then it's, I I interpret that as taking stock of how I use technology. And when I do use technology, being mindful so that it's about using the technology to my advantage and not being controlled by it.
0: Yeah, Spot
1: on. There have been so many messages today. There have been great acronyms like PWA, productive work arrangement, alliterations, like dipping into the digital divide. I got all the Ds right. You've got solutions like digital guardrails and family digital well-being plans and some awesome catchy sayings like techno tantrum, zero cost of inclusion and social intimate decision making. I'm going to put you on the spot give me three to five things. So, if, if if people have got to the this far in the podcast, well, of course they have because I'm with two beautiful, intelligent women. But if someone just wants this, the top hits, quick fix, what would you say are the three or five things to absolutely categorically do to help you go past go and to collect $200?
0: Okay. This is like selecting your favorite child. Um, I've got lots of little- I, I've- You've got
1: one, right? I've Everyone has a. Is that
0: well, Billy? I have because one. Billy, I ruined Billy.
1: for <laughs> Billy, these pirates, car.
0: <laughs> um Look, I often say the basics work if you work the basics. So having a digital curfew makes it, it sound, and it's harder than what it sounds, but putting some parameters around your tech use before you go to sleep. Not only is it the blue light effect, but it's us thinking about what we're doing on a screen, especially if we're on an interactive screen. So having a a 60 minute curfew. I think we need to stop nibbling on our inboxes. So many of us spend our whole days in our inboxes and our inbox becomes our to-do list. Research actually has quantified that the ideal number of times you should be checking your inbox is between two and four times a day. Anything less than that, and you start suffering from FOMO, anything more than that, and it puts a huge dent in your productivity. Good
1: luck doing that in a big bank or a consulting firm. So, I'd at least get people to find a happy medium in between. Pockets, Pockets, okay. Number one, digital curfew. Two, stop nibbling on your inbox. Number three.
0: Number three, um, I'm going to say start monotasking, not multitasking. And again, easier said than done. We know from studies that when you multitask, I've told you all the things that happened before with your glucose and your cortisol levels, but we also know it actually takes you around 40% longer to multitask than monotask, and you make around 50% more errors. If you are working in a big bank or an accounting firm, those errors could be very, very costly if you put a decimal point or a, a zero somewhere it shouldn't. So it's starting to do one thing and doing one thing well. My other habit. Fourth one would be to be taking regular breaks. Being on a screen is exhausting and we need to work. I know you talk about this too, Andrew, with our ultradian rhythms. We naturally have peaks and troughs roughly every 90 minutes. So we are designed, I say, to work in digital dashes rather than marathons. So we need to do a sprint and we need to have a break. And the break needs to be something restorative, Checking your phone, checking cricket schools or social media is not constituted as a break. It will certainly add to your stress. So that would be my fourth one.
1: Give me five. You know I've got o- <laughs> OCD on this stuff. Uh, I need five. I don't like you even don't like numbers. Even numbers. Yeah,
0: I know. It's strange. It. Okay, five. Whoa, what can I pick?
1: I'll, I'll, give, I'll, I'll, I'll add one for you.
0: Go for it.
1: Put in some guidelines for important relationships. So put mm. some guidelines with your working crew. Call that the digital guardrails. Put in some guidelines for your family. So the family digital wellbeing plan. I like that. To so people you spend regular time with. And Angela, we did this Way back when you started here, we went through some guidelines. I basically told you the way that we are doing this, but we've evolved that, right, with COVID. We've had to adapt and change. And when new people start working with us or even consultants that work with us on a regular basis, we tell them, here is the way we work, WWW, so we can be efficient, productive and have a good relationship and not waste time on both sides.
0: Yeah. At those digital guardrails, I firmly believe, are the – the linchpin of making hybrid work work. If we do not articulate the in, in organisations the norms, practices and principles, people are going to be, and the research is telling us this, Cisco released a study recently that showed that close to 70% of people said they found it challenging to switch off from work because we feel like we need to be responsive we need to you know it's really hard when all of your colleagues are on the team's chat replying at 11 p.m at night and you're choosing not to Um, so having in place those guardrails that are the accepted norms and behaviors mean that people can switch off microsoft did a study recently showing that we're now seeing a third productivity peak so we used to see one around 10 a.m one around 3 or 4 p.m but now we're seeing one at around 10 to 11 p.m at night
1: Live people now. I can't wait to see you at a conference soon when we're both sharing the stage live because we've done so much virtual work and um, you, know, you are as well. Back doing live, it's been a bit awkward to start with, like we're waiting to let people in the room and <laughs> not saying you're on mute. But isn't it? It's lovely doing live events. So good. I my look feet forward. aren't the
0: same. I have, will admit, wearing stilettos again has been somewhat challenging. I know my and, calves are and and so tight. The, the, the wardrobe mullet. So I've been rocking the professional in the Zoom or the Teams window and having the active. <laughs> Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I like water
1: mullet. And my, my, I find when I wear high heels <laughs> that my My calves, because it does, it puts you up on your heels, but then your hip flexes. So I have to do lots of stretching on my iliopsoas and my gastrocnemius and my soleus. That's some deep exercise physiology anatomy work for all the nerds listening to this. No, I, I look forward to seeing you. I don't wear high heels much. I look forward to seeing you at a conference saying, and if you're really busy, stressed out, burned out, and you want to do the top five, here's Dr. Christie's top five. Do these five absolutely before you do anything else. Number one is a digital curfew. Two, stop nibbling on your inbox. Three, start monotasking, not multitasking. Four, do digital dashes and take regular brain breaks. And five, have some digital guardrails. Thank you. Get out of here. Bang. Boom. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Pleasure. Thanks, Christy. How do people buy the
1: book? How do people connect with you?
0: Uh, So ironically- (laughs) If you need your dopamine hit on social media, I try to share bite-sized bits of information so it encourages people to tame their tech habits. So I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn um, and my book will be coming out with Major Street Publishing in February. I'm saying this here. So I go off to edit it in February next year and available on my website as well.
1: Name of the book?
0: Uh, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk.
1: Oh, that's a great name. That's a great name. Gosh, that's a good name. All right, final question. This is the flip. Is there a question that you are sitting there thinking, gosh, Andrew, Angela, this is a question you need to ask me? Or the flip, is there a question you would like to ask us specific to digital well-being?
0: Oh, I would love to know from both of you. I'm a big believer in micro habits. I think making radical shifts never really leads to long-term behavioural change. So I'd love to know what's one micro habit that either of you, and I'm putting you both on the spot here, (laughs) that you have applied to better use your digital devices. How have you tamed technology? (laughs) I'm going to go first. Um,
2: I don't know whether it's a micro habit, but it's it's using uh, technology in a way that helps me be much more focused, which is my – I don't have any (laughs) – Rip off. (laughs) I don't have any um, sponsorship or anything like that, but it is my very simple digital notebook that does nothing – other than take notes, no distractions, no pop-ups, no emails, no calendar invites. And I, I must admit, I do have someone to thank for that, which was you, Andrew. Oh, <laughs> acknowledgement. <laughs> <Right>. Thank you. <laughs> Andrew had had his great uh, remarkable that he was using and he would, he'd write all his notes and then we'd have these conversations uh, with clients and he'll ask me a week later and go, oh, what did client ABC say about X, Y, and Z? And I'll be be flipping through my paper notebook and I wouldn't be able able to find it.
1: What what did Steve say in that meeting? And I'd go, I said that there's 15 staff in the executive team and then 47 in the other one. And you go, how do you remember that? And I was just telling Angela, I've got this amazing photographic memory and then I had to let him (laughs) know I actually take notes. And then if you read your notes after you take them in the meeting... And the research shows this, it absolutely elevates that memory recall.
2: Yes. So this is what I use now. You you can categorize them into clients. You can categorize them into organizations. And then it's like a filing system, uh, but externally that you're able to then go to your notes for. So that has been a game changer uh, for my productivity.
1: Mine is um, Tuesdays. You work four days a weekend, so you have Tuesday to paint and spend time with your family. Uh, and and we call it FOT in our office. It's Fuck Off Tuesday. And I, <laughs> having four kids, I go to work, at, as I know you do, to get a break, right? Love my kids, but when I'm at home, I can't do deep work, so I'm on Fuck Off Tuesday, I come in here and I love it because I'll come in early and just do some writing and then I'll go home. i live near work, literally a walk over the road and go home then have brekkie with the kids and then come back. And then I'll do a block where I don't have tech on. So it's actually Mm. anti-tech and I'll do my deep work on a FOT morning and I get so much done so much in fact you said to me one time how are you getting all this done like well the little secret just have a half day a week where you just go deep and write stuff and I find Christy for what you and I do when you're speaking and coaching and writing and mentoring and podcasting the base for me is that at least half a day I'd ideally like a day but we're busy now Angie pulling me into all your programs that you're selling, which is a great problem to have, but at least half a day a week on content. So then when you do write a book or put a program together or do a podcast, you're constantly evolving information. Whereas if you're just flying in, doing meetings and you know good work, but not going deep and doing some of the hard yards on IP, it is then bloody painful to write a book or put something together. So that that's my little secret on that is FOT.
0: All right. Well, I've turned off the microphone on my phone, um, because I was sick of getting sponsored ads. But I was gonna say if the microphone was still on, I've been looking at a remarkable. So uh, this will be a test to see if turning your microphone off really does stop advertisements <laughs> coming into your social media feed. I'm temp you may have sold me on a remarkable. Oh, and, he has got and the remarkable, Google. but I've I actually
2: did a bit more research and I actually went with a different um tech called uh, I think it's this is called supernote okay um, because with a remarkable uh, that you you have to get a subscription um, and I didn't like the subscription model so I found what I think is a much more superior device. It's why I'm the sales guy and
1: she's the strategic <laughs> operations manager that keeps it all going. <laughs> does the Hey, um, and this has been fun having you in the studio. We've done podcasts where I've interviewed you, you've interviewed me, but we've never gone... Co- side by side, no. Yeah, it's, it's, I think a format will have to do more of. Oh, I've enjoyed it. Have you?
2: Yeah, I have. Um, and like Christy, I always enjoy talking to Christy as well. So she's made this fun too. Yeah. it just you. Yeah.
1: No, it's just <laughs> <laughs> much better with doing with other people. I, I, I just want to finish on that. Yeah, you, you're doing the and set, you're doing the work, you're putting great information out there. So thank you today for sharing those tips and keep doing what you're doing because people need this. Kids, mid-range adults, even more mature adults, we are all being bombarded by the technology and we need to put in some habits and behaviours. So thank you for sharing what you do. My
0: pleasure. Thank you for having me. Nice to chat you, too.
1: You too. Hey, it's Andrew, and we hope you enjoyed that episode. We would really appreciate it if you helped us amplify the Strive Stronger with Andrew May podcast by sharing episodes with colleagues and friends and going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help us get this message out to a wider audience. And if you would like to know more about how Strive Stronger uplifts teams through optimizing human performance and well-being, make sure you check out strivestronger.com. And if you'd like to know more about my personal practice, focusing on all things human performance, go to AndrewMade.com, where you can explore the books I have written, including Matchfit, which has now sold over 85,000 copies, or book me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite. Or if you'd like to really turbocharge your business and personal success and wake up to a better way of living, working and leading, check out my brand new evidence-based human performance academy that starts in July. I'm really, really looking forward to getting that going. And if you'd like to receive regular updates from me each month, make sure you subscribe to my monthly e-newsletter, the AM edition.